Welcome to CRT2, Columbia Race Talks, Critical Race Theory. I am Flores Forbes. And I'm Kendall Thomas. In this episode, our Columbia Law School student team brings you a story about social movements and movement lawyering in law school. Join us for this deep dive into what critical race theory is and why it matters. And now to our story. to understand the law as being some higher level way in which we need to learn how to govern and maneuver and work with society. When in fact, the law emerges from the people and not some higher up coming down, right? And the way law is taught and educated, it excludes community and those indirectly impacted from the law from this conversation. Right. If we really, if we really are interested in developing a democratic society, we cannot exclude community. We just heard from Professor Alejo Rodriguez. Professor Rodriguez is a social justice advocate, poet, public speaker, and adjunct professor at the Center for Institutional and Social Change at Columbia Law School. In that excerpt, Professor Rodriguez describes an approach to law that characterizes a new kind of social justice lawyering called movement lawyering. Traditionally, lawyers have focused on legal and legislative changes to bring about social justice goals. If you think of the lawyers at the NAACP during the civil rights era. Instead, movement lawyering believes that law is only one of many tools available to achieve systemic change. Movement lawyers center the community and directly impacted individuals by listening to, supporting, and facilitating their goals. Rather than focusing on legal procedures, movement lawyers prioritize helping the community to gain a sense of its own power to fight the conditions of oppression. But this approach to the law is not what we learn in law school. Instead, we're taught that the law is the only legitimate method for achieving systemic change, and that lawyers are the ones who should be in charge of those movements. But the law also has a big role to play in creating the conditions of oppression. In order to become an effective movement lawyer, you need to understand the role of the law in creating powerlessness. Oftentimes, this means unlearning a lot of what you learned in law school. To understand how ideas from movement lawyering could be used to improve legal education, we spoke to Professor Alejo Rodriguez and Professor Susan Sturm, the founding director of the Center for Institutional and Social Change, about a new project at the center called BATTLE. BATTLE stands for Breakthrough in Abolition Through Transformative Legal Empowerment and was designed by Professor Rodriguez to forge a collaboration between formerly incarcerated community leaders and the Black Law Students Association at Columbia, known as BALSA. My colleagues Manika and Juhi spoke to Professor Alejo a few days ago. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Rodriguez. We are here today to discuss your project, Battle, at the Center for Institutional and Social Change at Columbia Law School and the topic of movement lawyering. While I know battle was not intended to be an example of movement lawyering, we think the approach it takes is similar, in that law students engage with issues in the law with directly impacted individuals, 
instead of, for example, law professors. Could you introduce Battle for our listeners? Sure. One, thank you for having me. Good morning. Just really happy to be here and just really love to have this opportunity to share with you. One of the things I would say about Battle, it's a learning exchange opportunity between um, law school students, uh, primarily working with a lot of BOSA students, BOSA members, and with um, directly impacted formerly incarcerated individuals. And um, we have a host of individuals, about five formerly incarcerated individuals. Um, as well of about four to five people who are BOSA members in this learning exchange. Um, and just a, a way of examining the law and the impact of the law in creating marginalized communities from both sides of the law, if you would, from those who are looking to be practitioners and those who have been impacted directly about it. Um, I think what's also very um, special about the class is that it really leans in from a non-traditional approach of examining the impact of the law, like really examining it from the impact of marginalized communities and not from a top-down perspective. So as we understand it, Battle is a project designed around the movement to abolish the prison industrial complex. Could you give our listeners a brief introduction to this movement and what do you mean by the term prison industrial complex? One of the one of the most instructive definitions I ran across of the prison industrial complex um, exists in um in a book called The Plague of Prisons by Ernest Drucker. And you know, just paraphrasing, he has said that, you know, prisons are used as a form, as as a uh, as a tool of mass incarceration for a means of social control. That mass incarceration has nothing to do with crime and punishment. That prisons, in fact, is just a vehicle to help support a larger scheme. And when we look at it that way, then we realize, um, or we should pay attention to the fact that it's layered, not just based on uh, uh, prison labor. This idea of prison industrial complex is not just the exploitation of prison labor, but how would it actually in, uh, uh, is built to exploit community. And, and of course, that's a, that's a really bold jump, right? It's a huge leap. And so what battle does is try to try to really examine the origins of, let's say, the 13th Amendment. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery after the Civil War. But the amendment has an exception for those who are convicted of a crime. So if you are convicted of a crime, you could still be held to involuntary servitude. The documentary The 13th on Netflix does a great job of explaining the link between the 13th Amendment and the prison industrial complex. So we asked Professor Rodriguez what Battle's findings on the 13th Amendment were. Often when we look at the 13th Amendment, we act as if this idea of felony disenfranchisement had always existed. But this country was born in 1776. We had our first jail in the same month, and yet we do not talk about felony disenfranchisement until 90 years later, not until Black people are free. Before that, Black people were enslaved based on a social construct that the law has designed. And once they're free, we have a 13th Amendment, another social, another social application of how to reinvent slavery. 
Um, so, Professor, I know you spoke a little bit about how law is used as a form of social control. And I think when we spoke the other day, you elaborated on that as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you see the role of the law in perpetuating marginalization and um, and the prison industrial complex or mass incarceration? Yeah, thank you. A little backdrop, you know, I, I myself was also um, direct. I am also directly impacted. I served 32 years in um, the New York State prison system, and so in addition to having to to reflect on my life circumstances that led me and got me into that situation, I started thinking systemically. Like I'm not just a product of my incarcerated experience. I have experienced you know, like a sequence of failing institutions from school to healthcare um, to employment, you know. And so I began to just think about it broadly, not just in, in, in the perspective of being imprisoned, but how marginalization has occurred and has been reinforced in, in my own personal life. There's a, a quote from Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, that uh, I, I just think that oftentimes we gloss over it because it's such a profound book. Right? But there's a statement that if we truly would have understood the impact of the civil rights movement, we would have never entered into the era of mass incarceration. And so what that reminds me is during the civil rights movement, the issue of the time was segregation. And many of us felt if we were able to just desegregate, if we can just move these change and these barriers, then the Black community would be better positioned to thrive. No one would imagine the use of prisons as the next iteration of social control. Back in slavery, the thinking was if we just remove this stain of slavery, what I've gathered from there is every time we just focus on a one solution aspect to the problem that is systemic. We leave ourselves open for multiple assaults in different ways, a reinvention of the same practice in a different design. So the idea of examining or like getting to the heart of it and looking at the law, because then we're doing examination all from the results of what had happened. We have not begun to even examine the role that the law has played in creating the structure. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Um, Professor, um, you know, you have taught us so much in this conversation, but I, I don't, you know, it's important for our listeners to know that you're not a lawyer, yet your um, understanding of the law is perhaps more uh, rooted than most lawyers. Um, Professor, do you mind giving our listeners a little bit about your story so they have the context in terms of understanding where you get this deep perspective of the law from? Yes, thank you very much. Um, as I said, you know, I, I, I spent 32 years in New York State prison and at first, and I had kept, I, I took the plea, so I accepted my responsibility early on. And so the first part of my um time in prison, I spent just going to college for the most part um, and trying to work with others uh, in different type of, for lack of a better word, they do have social service programs in prison. And so I, I work in those kind of fields. Um, and 
listening to people's problems because I was working in social service, listening to the ways in which things just begin to unfold systemically. And it's just so difficult to put your finger on it when it actually happens. And yet it seems to be reinforcing such as for now, you can say, we can say prisoner, uh, a school to prison pipeline and people make that connection. 20, 30 years ago, I was to say that people were like, that's, that's insane. We're not, we're not training kids to go to school. But the people who are experiencing it know it to be true. We just couldn't put our finger on it. 30 years later, there's a lot more evidence to support it. And so it be, and then, then if this became this, I don't know, this anger, I think was motivated by anger that I kind of felt that even though I, 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 I realized you have some really good scholars doing some really, really good work. I didn't feel they had the right to talk about my situation or they were doing so without consulting me. Like, how dare they? They spent a day in prison, you know, or they'll say, you know, a person just came out from doing three years and he had this enormous amount of insight. And I'm saying, well, that's good for that person. Three, I've hated did three years and enormous amount of insight. I did 30 years. Like, who's asking me anything? Nobody. No one is coming inside. Right. And so my feeling was, well, then I'm going to have to go outside, even through the walls. And I need to better, I better know what I'm talking about if I want to make it through the walls. And so the studying became a little more in depth. Thank you so much, Professor. I wanted to hear a little bit more about the other community leaders at Backloop. And if you can get, tell us about them, their journeys, to you know, give our listeners an understanding of the immense experience and perspective that they're bringing to Backloop. Thank you so much for that, because that's one area that we haven't touched in. I think it really speaks to the power of paying attention to critical race theory application, not just movement lawyering, but also just really paying attention to critical race theory and the praxis of the, the leaders. So powerful. Um, one individual, uh, his name is, um, his name is Wes Keynes, and he is the chief of staff of Bronx Defenders. So he did his time and came out and he did very well in contributing to this movement of criminal justice reform. Another young man, Corey Green, just recently graduated as a doc with his doctorate from CUNY Graduate School. The sister, Kiki Dunstan, used to be a former NYPD police officer. Due to some unfortunate circumstances, she was convicted and did seven years. She's now working in criminal justice reform. She's a director of community engagement with Hudson Link, one of the most significant college programs reentry type programs that New York State has. And lastly, we have Rosalind Smith, who did 40 years. And there's a number of there's a number of evidences of her activism while in Bedford Hills in New York State. So we have a really, really unique group of leaders and individuals who who have the ability to move beyond their trauma and not just getting caught into the impact of their individual trauma from the prison experience. Not to say that someone is healed from the trauma. I'm not saying that. They're not 
stuck. They're able to, they've been able to look at their personal experience as a deeper examination, as a portal, if you would, into systemic change. Programs like Battle allow oppressed communities to work with lawyers and other professionals in their struggle to improve conditions. We also spoke to Professor Susan Sturm, a law professor and the founding director of the Center for Institutional and Social Change, about the role movement lawyers can play in assisting communities in their efforts to combat oppression. We asked Professor Sturm what, in her view, a true criminal justice system would look like and how we can center directly impacted individuals in our work as legal professionals. If I could make one change and only one change to transform the criminal legal system to become a criminal justice system, it would be to center the involvement and the leadership of people directly impacted. All of my experience shows that when you do not have the participation and leadership, even really well-intentioned lawyers and policymakers will get it wrong and they won't be able to sustain the work. And they won't be able to produce the kind of ethics and ethos that underlies these transformational efforts. Uh, so all of that has led me in the center, first of all, to make sure that people who are have firsthand experience are leading these projects. Uh, and secondly, part of what's really powerful is that even, even though it is true that this leadership is central, one cannot transform the criminal legal system without the participation of lawyers and without the participation of people who are currently in positions of power, if for no other reason than to share that power. And so part of what's so exciting about the design of, of battle is that it is forged by and centrally features the leadership of people directly impacted and it also really appreciates the importance of collaboration with people who do not have that kind of firsthand experience, but bring other kinds of knowledge and wisdom and experience into the room. We have to be very attentive to the ways in which power is exercised, uh, lest we unwittingly recreate the very power dynamics that the project was designed uh, to change. I'm interested to hear your opinions on what do you think the proper or appropriate role of a lawyer is in building or contributing to a social movement, whether that's a law professor, a law student, or um, a corporate lawyer, just anyone in our profession. And I'm interested to know how do we as lawyers not occupy all the space because traditionally lawyers are seen as the gatekeepers of power. This question about how we exercise our own power is just such an important one. And I, I've seen a couple of things just speaking firsthand of using one's power to open up a space for people who otherwise would not be in the room and in a position to speak for themselves. Uh, so that's such a critically important role uh, because so often uh, lawyers will be invited into the space in a way that community members will not initially have access to. Uh, and that puts us in a position to reframe the way power is exercised in that space itself. 
So that's a really important role. We also have a lot of access to resources that can be shared with communities and also understand the resources and redefine what expertise means so that the forms of resources that people in communities have uh, get the respect and the value, including compensation, that really is warranted. So that's something that lawyers can really do. Lawyers have also an understanding of the way power currently operates. And so there's a lot of an opportunity to understand and, and build um, collective understanding, a legal literacy, such that people directly impacted have even greater power to exercise their own voice um, in spaces where power is operating. Lawyers can also um, open up legal institutions to greater racial literacy by creating spaces for dialogue about the racial assumptions that are currently built in to current cultures and current practices. Uh, and so can be part of that, that dialogue and that, and that conversation to reimagine the images and the stories that are currently informing the ways in which people of color and communities affected by incarceration are currently stereotyped in and often uh, marginalized by current legal institutions um, and practices. Uh, and in, uh, in that way, reimagine the way law operates. So we move from an idea of law as only operating on or against communities to thinking about law in the way I learned about from my mentor, Robert Cover, which law is the relationship between the is, the ought and the what might be. If you think about law that way, then lawyers have a place at the table, but not the place at the table. I'm a part of this. I can contribute to it. I'm not just a recipient of it. I have the ability to contribute to it. And I think that has been transforming. Even for law school, besides, and I think for the for the directly impacted folks, it's been demystifying of the law so that it is accessible. So maybe accessibility is the word in answering to your question. It's caused greater accessibility in ways that I couldn't even imagine when we thought of it. I feel like it's it's been really inspirational um, hearing from you because we we forget that law is like a living breathing thing that can you know change depending on what we do and you know just going through case after case and reading you know decisions after decisions it, it kind of dulls you in a way um, that it's education. So the format of the education can almost be disempowering in that like it, it weighs down on you so much that you forget that you can do the work to look at what you're reading critically and cha make change. So yeah, what, what you've said today has kind of rekindled that. Um, so uh, yeah, that spirit. So that it's, it's been great. Thank you so much.
Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Kendall Thomas. I am Flores Ford. And this is CRT2, Columbia Race Talks, Critical Race Theory. <laughs>